Hi, I'm Sydney. And I'm Viv. Welcome to Sprout, a podcast about finding your place in the world and growing an impactful career. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Sproutcast. This is Viv and today we're bringing you an episode that's a bit different. Recently, I attended an event run by Next Chapter with Sahil Bloom, which was totally awesome and I can't wait to share it with you all. Sahil graduated from Stanford, managed $3.5 billion in capital, has Angel invested in over 30 companies and grew to 400,000 Twitter followers. Some of his key writings include How to Win Without Talent or Luck and How to Make $10 Million by 30. While Sydney and I don't appear in this episode, Sahil gives great advice on leveraging the creator economy, networking, how he became friends with Tim Cook, Apple CEO, and on building the life you want. If you haven't heard of Next Chapter, it's a community that runs through Slack of ambitious, curious Gen Z builders, investors, and creators. It's actually co-founded by Max, who was on our last episode, and Hannah from episode two. The idea behind the community is that you can bring the most incredible people together. You make the exceptional normal. That includes making founding startups normal, making crypto normal, making angel investing normal, you name it. It's pretty damn cool. So if you want to check it out, head to the website nextchapter.to slash community. We'll leave the link in the description below. If you have any questions about Next Chapter, feel free to reach out to me via our Facebook community or through LinkedIn. Now, on to the episode. So kind of just want to jump in just in terms of like your story um, as a content creator. What kind of made you realize there was an opportunity for you to jump in and would just really love for you to describe that whole journey um, from start to now? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, f- first off, thanks for having me, and thanks everyone for joining. Really appreciate it. Super humbled by the uh, by the opportunity to talk to so many of you, and wish I got to do it in person. I'd love to uh, come back to Australia. I've been once, uh, and absolutely loved it. So my journey was kind of a weird one. I um, I went to Stanford, as you mentioned. I basically went down like a very traditional path. So. I came from a family, my mom's Indian, my dad's white Jewish, um, both were like very academically inclined. And so I had kind of always uh, grown up in this household where it was like, you go down the neat path and that's what your life is supposed to be. You go like, go get a steady job and kind of just like put your head down and work that way. We weren't particularly entrepreneurial household. And so um, that was what I had been accustomed to. And so I left Stanford and took a job at this private equity fund, like kind of very standard finance role. And it was great. I learned a lot, but a few years in, I kind of knew that it wasn't really a match for me. Um, I was like a bull in a China shop a little bit. I always wanted to you know, be out in front of people, talking to people, and it like didn't like having my head down in a computer quite as much as I was supposed to. And so it, there was always a little bit of an active tension, but I'm assuming some of you have felt this. It's very hard um, to kind of figure out what the jumping point is to change. Like uh, the, the longer you're doing something, especially if it's a good thing, quote unquote, um, the kind of, um, momentum that you have in a career is very hard to derail. And so I was progressing, things were good. I was like on the quote, the track that people want you to be on. And I didn't know what the change was going to be. And I didn't know what the impetus was going to be to make that change. COVID as it ended up was that impetus for me. Um, because 
simply, I went from working 90 to 100 hours a week and traveling three, four days a week to having more time on my hands. And I had to figure out what I was going to do with that time. And like a lot of people, it was a big change point for my life. And so for me personally, I took to writing. Um, I had always loved writing. It was always the way that I clarified my thinking. So I had always been like a journaler or someone that would write down random thoughts in the shower, on walks, whatever. I would always turn to writing to clarify my thinking. And um, when COVID happened and I had more time on my hands, I started thinking about what were things I could write about that people would find value in. And what I noticed was we were in this unique point in time where you had a world that was in total chaos, yet the markets and the economy from the surface level seemed to be soaring. Like the stock market in the US at least was absolutely booming while people were unemployed and everyone was out of work. And I had a lot of friends and a lot of people from my baseball background and from other kind of walks of life that were asking me what the hell was happening. They were turning to me because I was like in finance and so people thought I would know. And so I decided that um, maybe that was something that I could write about as a starting point. So I started, um, really with no grand strategy around it, just thinking, how can I kind of abstract the complexity of that whole world and deliver something that's really simple, intuitive, um, and that people find value in. So that was kind of the jumping off point into the whole thing. And I'm happy to obviously to kind of get into more detail around it, but that was really the, the turning point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting, particularly just around how you mentioned, like you didn't really have a strategy at the beginning. Um, I think a lot of people in the audience are curious, just like, how did you go about developing like a strategy over time or like, was your growth just like unexpected or, um, yeah. I'm a big planner. Uh, <laughs> I'm very, very type A and it's been one of the weirdest journeys for me personally, because, uh, the virality and like exponential nature of growth in the internet age is so counterintuitive for the way our brains are wired. We're just horrible as humans. We're horrible at understanding exponential growth, just full stop. Like no one comprehends and you cannot figure it out. And so you try to plan as a planner, you're thinking like, oh, six months from now, I'm going to do this. A year from now, I'm going to do this. Two years from now, I'm going to do this. You're like, make your five-year plan that all your parents want you to make or teachers or whoever. And the reality of the internet age is if you're on a exponential growth curve, you cannot plan around it. And if I had ever thought three months in advance or six months in advance, I would have been way off. And so I very quickly realized that when I was first starting because you know it took me a few weeks to get a thousand followers and then it took me you know a day to get a thousand followers after that or so something like that where it was very clear to me early on that um i wasn't going to be able to plan out in front of this or like create a strategy and so what i had to do was just continue to be um very consistent with what i was putting out and continue to be guided by like my curiosity around it which we can talk about more um because that was what was going to actually differentiate long term. It wasn't going to be that I could plan and create some grand strategy around it because anything I tried to make a decision around, I was wrong within a month. Yeah, interesting. So then in terms of people in this audience, like how would you kind of recommend approaching this if they're like a content creator just starting out? I think you have, I mean, the, the key to all of this is consistency. I talk a lot about this when I, in my writing. I talk about kind of intensity versus consistency. And I think <clears throat> how I define it is like you have to be consistently intense. Um, and it's it seems paradoxical. But basically, I, I think you need to 
um, find a way that you can write something or create something on a consistent basis, um, but in sprints. So nothing works when you're um, trying to just like have pedal to the metal all the time. You, you just can't do it. You burn out. I did that. I worked in finance for seven years and they want you to work 90 to 100 hour weeks in some of these careers. And um, you can't do it at a high level for that period of time. It just doesn't work. Um, so what I would recommend for people starting out is find something that you really want to write about that you know you can continue to write about. And I say write, it could be create videos around, it could be drawing, it could, I mean, it could be anything that you want to create, but it needs to be something that you really care about and that you can continue to do. Um, so I tend to think of it in terms of like inputs and outputs. You have, I call it a content engine, but basically like what are you consuming on a daily basis? Articles, podcasts, shows, video games, whatever it is that you're consuming is kind of your content engine. That's everything that you're consuming. You need a format to kind of take that and turn that into output that you can actually deliver to people. And that all needs to be built around something you actually care about. Because if it's something that you don't care about and you're just gonna try to force it, it's impossible to do consistently. And I've never had, I mean, I've, if I look at my own growth trajectory on all of these platforms, I don't think I've ever had a single piece of content that's driven more than like a few thousand followers of growth. So it's really just been me pounding my head into a wall over and over again for almost two years now. Um, and delivering quite well against that, but it's not like some one hit wonder where you can just take off. Some platforms have that. I think TikTok, like with the algorithm, sometimes a video will catch and you can do that. But Twitter, newsletters, YouTube, it's much harder to do that. It really needs to be consistent and consistency requires you doing it around something you really care about, that you're passionate about because the audience can tell. Yeah, for sure. So I guess like another topic that we want to dive into is um, on your Twitter, like you have a bunch of frameworks um, and mental models for people. And one of them is around like saying no to opportunities versus saying yes. Um, so what's your framework for saying hell yeah versus no to an opportunity in your career when there are boundless of opportunities in this day and age? So my general rule of thumb, which I've only recently um, fully appreciated or come to, is that in your 20s, and I imagine there's a lot of people in their 20s here, it's like the time of your life to say yes and feel a little bit overwhelmed. Um, and then in your 30s and beyond, that's the time to start saying no to almost everything. And I'll explain that a little bit. Basically, um, in your 20s, you don't know anything. Like you haven't done anything yet. And I'm just recently removed from my 20s, so it's not like I'm someone, you know, some old guy that's coming and saying that. But in your 20s, you're going to be exposed to all of the new things that kind of dictate the path of what you're excited about and interested in. Um, and you don't want to say no to things that might end up being some massive passion. I've had several occasions where things that I said yes to when I was like, this is weird, doesn't really match my interests or passions, not really, doesn't seem like a good use of my time, but I said yes to it um, because I was 25 and I didn't, yeah, I was like, why not? Let me just say yes to this. Take on this new opportunity. Do that side hustle. Partner with some random people on something. Go to the you know event that didn't really make sense to me. And then something came from it. And it was impossible for me to predict what that something was. But something came from it that became interesting and became a passion area or something that I was focused on later. Um, so I just think your 20s are like the time to massively expand your, I call it like your serendipity surface area, just massively expand the um, surface area at which you can become lucky. And that requires saying yes to a lot of things. 
um, your 30s and beyond, that's the time where you then double down on what you know is going to create leverage around your life. And I'm now in that phase where I need to start being more diligent and more deliberate about what I spend my time on and what I focus on because life hits you, right? Like you have kids, you get married, you have um, priorities, things you need to focus on. And that's when you need to focus on intensity and really doubling down. But my like biggest advice and recommendation to young people always, and it's advice I would give my younger self as well, is just say yes to things when you're young and then say no to things when you get a little bit older. Something I'm curious, like touching on that point is I think there's a lot of other ideas that are kind of competing with this like 10,000 hours, like you have to put in so much time or like people when they're younger and they get started earlier uh, achieve a lot more. So how do you combat that feeling of like, even though you're exploring and maybe you haven't found like the thing that you really resonate with this competing idea that you need to have found that thing by an early age or at some point? Yeah, I think it's mostly bullshit, to be totally honest. Um there's a handful of people that I think it makes sense for that specialization from an early, like Tiger Woods, everyone wants to point to him as an example of this, you know, golfer and like focus from the time he was three, it was like only golf and that's all it is. And I think it's, gen you, you hear the exceptional examples of that, but the reality is that the world is going to belong to generalists, people that are dynamic, people that can interact with you, also go and build, also go and sell. Um, they can market, they can write, do all of these different things and be like true polymaths. The way Benjamin Franklin was a polymath, the way um, Leonardo da Vinci was a polymath. I mean, these amazing people that if you go read their biographies, totally blow you away. Some of the best books I've ever read, by the way. Um, those are the people that are going to dominate the next era especially as computers become more and more intelligent, by the way, I think generalists and creativity are what are going to be the like, the limiting reagents on future. And so if you can be a highly intellectually curious person, if you can be someone that um, is dynamic, you can sell, you can build, you can kind of be dangerous in a bunch of different areas. Um, that's where the future is for most people. And I say most because there will clearly be exceptions. I have friends who will never be any good at selling, but they are so unbelievable at building, at coding, at development, developing, et cetera, that that's all they should probably focus on because they can really be a king at that one thing or a queen at that one thing. Um, and so I, um, I generally think the whole desire to specialize early is kind of bullshit. And I apologize for my language. I just, it's something I feel pretty strongly about. No, that's great. Thank you so much for that. And um, the other thing that would resonate with a lot of people and audiences that are early in their careers is personal branding and building credibility. How should people without the badge on their resumes at this early in their stage build that credibility? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, broadly speaking, the walls of credentialism are cracking. Um, I don't think they've been torn down people still care about your degree or whatever nonsense you put on your LinkedIn or your resume. But I think it's starting to crack. Um, in the digital world, I really think in five years, your credibility will be established by what you've actually done and built, not where you went to school, not, you know, the honor you got or whatever it, you know, how much money your parents have, et cetera. Um, especially as things become increasingly pseudonymous online and it's more and more driven by um, what you've actually gone and created and done. I think it becomes more important to focus on 
building and creating rather than credentialing. Um, and that's a great change, by the way. I think that's the most important thing in the world for evening the opportunity playing field. I've been shouting this from the rooftops for two years now publicly that talent is evenly distributed and opportunity is not. You know, my mom is Indian. I grew up spending a lot of time in India and seeing all the kids that are born on the streets there and how different my opportunity set was being born where I was versus theirs. And I want to change that and I want to see that change. And I think we are slowly and steadily progressing to a world where that is the case. Um, so all of that goes to say you create your own credibility. There is nothing stopping you from going and building your own credibility. I don't think any of my like Stanford degree or anything that like is externally um, credentializing to me had anything to do with me building my personal brand and building credibility in the spaces that I think I did. It was all driven by creating value for people. Um, great. Like there's plenty of people that have degrees and do all of these things and they haven't created value for anyone. And so they're not considered credible. Credibility is established and earned by creating value for people around you. And so if you have value that you can contribute to the world, whether you have zero degrees and you didn't graduate high school and didn't do any of those things, go out and contribute that value. And the market will tell you whether you have credibility or not on the basis of that. Mm. Yeah, I love that. And speaking of building credibility and bringing value to others, the next topic I wanted to dive into was networking and building relationships. Um, how should one approach building a large network of, you know, network of friends and investing in those relationships? Yeah, so I guess I would start, I, I hate the term networking because it sounds so transactional. The whole notion of networking has become this like meme on the internet that you have to go and add so many people on LinkedIn or you have to, uh, you know, send them messages and say, can I do a coffee chat or do this or that? The reality of it is like, humans are social creatures um, and it's building relationships. It's not networking. And so I, I think of all of this in terms of just genuinely being a curious person and being interested in others. Um, transactional networkers will always fail because they're, it's so transparent. Um, it's probably, I mean, people have probably seen it or I've talked about it. Tim Cook is one of my mentors, closest friends, the CEO of Apple. Um, I met him at, and I haven't really talked about this story publicly, so this is a funny one. I met him at the gym uh, in 2014. I would go to the gym every morning when I first started my first job. I would go get to the gym every morning at like 4.45, right when it opened. And that was because I wanted to be in the office by, by 6.15 or 6.30 because I wanted to really work hard and show that I was putting in a lot of effort and um, it mattered to me that I did that. And so I would go to the gym super early. There were maybe eight people, five to eight people that would get to the gym that early every single day. One of them was Tim Cook, the CEO of Apple. He had just become CEO. He wasn't super famous yet. Um, he was like the new, um, the new CEO who had taken over after Steve Jobs passed away. Um, for the six, first six months that I was interacting with him every day as one of the five people that was there in the mornings, I did not know who he was. I literally was completely oblivious. I hadn't come up in tech. I worked in finance. I didn't think about Apple. I didn't buy stock. And like, I didn't know anything about him. And so he was just someone that I would talk to every single morning. And he was just another one of the guys that was there. Um, I then found out who he was and uh, basically just had been talking to him and asked him, you know, whether he'd be willing to grab uh, breakfast. Um, and he has become one of the 
closest mentors, friends, advisors to me in my life, um, someone that I trust, trust deeply. And I asked him once why he had kind of taken this interest in me because it really made no sense. And he's constantly approached by people asking him for things, et cetera. And he said it was because he knew that I was genuine. And that really resonated with me because what I think you see so much with networkers and people that are constantly transactional about it is that you can tell when someone is being that way. You can tell when someone is approaching you or wanting to build a relationship because they have some value in mind that they're going to get out of it. Real relationship building, networking is so genuine. It has no end in sight. There's no value that you're trying to get out from it. It's because you're interested. It's because you just want to learn and you want to grow. Um, and that's what I think about is just go out and pursue new connections, new relationships with zero end in mind, with like zero goal, zero desire for whatever the next thing is or what the job is you're going to get from it or what the connection is you're going to get from it and good things happen. Um, and that's proven true to me time and time again. When I've gone into things with any sort of transaction in mind, actually, it's always gone downhill. When I've gone into things with a genuine long-term mindset about just building relationships, great things have tended to happen. My relationship with him is a case study in what I talk about sometimes, which is serendipity engineering, which is like this whole idea that you can create your own luck and that putting yourself in positions where luck can strike and where luck can happen because I was getting up every morning and going to the gym at 4:45, Um, and that's not like a hustle culture thing. I'm just saying like, there aren't that many people that were doing that. And so I was then in a position where something like that could happen to me, which wouldn't have happened if I wasn't doing that on a consistent basis. So I think there's really something to that as well, where you're like just putting yourself in positions where you can get lucky and where it might happen. Yeah, this could definitely tie into our last question, which we want to leave the audience with a with an advice from you. Um, if you were a graduate, a young professional or wanting to change a career right now, where would you invest your time into? Oh, shit. Um, it's a really hard question to answer. I think there's so many places to look. I If I were graduating right now, I would... Um, I wrote a thread about this recently and kind of a high level, I would basically go talk to the smartest people I knew or that were within my circles and figure out what they were most excited about. Um, and that comes from the perspective of me who I don't consider myself particularly smart. Um, I think I've done a handful of things on the basis of being super high energy and I love people. At the end of the day, like, what is my superpower? What is your superpower? It's the biggest question to ask when you're graduating or when you're embarking on your next career phase or whatever it is you're doing. What is your superpower? What is your zone of genius? I've written about that all the time. Figure out what that is and then figure out how you can position your playing field in life um, such that you are playing your game and not what everyone else wants you to play. I spent seven years of my career playing someone else's game, full stop. I mean, I was like, grinding my way away in finance. Um, and it was great. I got good foundation building. I learned a lot, but it wasn't my game at all. I was playing someone else's game. And it wasn't until I realized that, that I knew that there was actually a different way to do it and a different game that I could play that was much more well-suited to what my skill sets were. So if I were starting out and I were figuring out what I wanted to do next, I would start by figuring out what what your game is. Who are you? What, what are you going to be the best at? Or what are you going to be great at? It's not 
um, it's not about, you know, following the path that other people want for you or following the like neatly trodden path that um, everyone has laid out for you. It's about figuring out what you want to do. And I, I actually don't say that in the like, um, you know, self-help book way of like follow your passion because i personally think that like follow your passion is kind of bullshit sometimes um i've developed passions from digging into things that i actually wasn't passionate about and so i think it's much more about figuring out what your superpowers are or where you spike on a skill map and then figuring out what it is that is going to prioritize those where are you going to get to spend more time with those superpowers and less time on the things you're not great at i know what i'm very good at now i'm great with people. I love being around people because I care about people and I'm interested and I want to hear about their lives, whether or not they're successful or whatever they're doing. I talk to, I don't know, 50 people a week. And I try to talk to at least 10 new people a week. And that's because I really enjoy it. And there's no end in mind. I'm not thinking about what is that person going to give to me, but I'm spending time with them because somehow, some way, the, this is what I enjoy spending doing with my time. And it finds a way to create positive, um, a positive movement for me in my life. So that's what I would really prioritize if I were starting out is figure out what you're great at and go spend time with the smartest people, figure out what they're excited about. Um, those tend to be industries or areas that will have a ton of tailwinds around them. Um, and hit your wagon to those kind of things in a role that you are going to be able to really excel around. Mm -hmm. That was beautiful. Thanks for sharing that. Um, I'm going to get the stall right to our community now for the audience Q&A. Hannah, do you want to take the lead on this one? Yeah, for sure. Um, so we have a question from Brady. Hey, Sahil. Um, this has been so worth getting up super early uh, and finding signal on a dairy farm for. Um, <laughs> but I wanted, I wanted to ask a question around, uh, I really love the James Clear quote, uh, we don't uh, rise to our goals, we fall to our systems. And you touched on it before, you kind of have a little bit of a process um, turning inputs to outputs. I'd really love to understand that granularly. Like how does it actually, you know, all the things that happen before you do like a tweet storm, what, what is that process? Give me the tools. I'd love to know further. Yeah, that's a great quote. James is a friend and someone I've learned a lot from. He's amazing, super positive. So I'm like everything he writes about and says, he really lives by, which is great. I just love hearing that about people. Um, so for me personally, my... Um, my process around these things tends to be driven by my like daily consumption and my daily writing habit. Um, so around like a given thread or newsletter piece or whatever it is I'm writing, my general process is I read for an hour every single morning. Like point, I just have, I have it blocked on my calendar. I wake up in the morning and the first thing I do is I go down and I, um, you know, have my drink and get a coffee and I sit down and read. And I read generally the same things every day. Like I have a bunch of things that I kind of know are really high signal that it kind of won't let me down. And you develop your own version of that. That's my content engine. That's, you know, for me, I read Bloomberg in the morning. I read the information. I read, you know, a handful of newsletters that I think are really good. And I'll read for an hour. When I'm reading, I will make a note, I use either Notion or I'm testing out Obsidian now, but basically make a note of anything that kind of sparked my interest um, to talk more about. So it's, you know, things that I thought were novel, things that I thought were um, kind of like made me go, 
made me go, hmm, or made me go like, wow, that's interesting, whatever, I'll make a note of it, create a little board in Notion. And um, basically, then later in the morning, I have kind of a focus work period where I will spend time digging into a handful of those things. And I try not to force it, like I won't um, tell myself, oh, I have to write about that thing today. I try to just be driven by what got me curious. And so I'll look at my board after I, you know, I have hundreds of these things. I can send you guys my, what my notion board looks like, but basically I have a hundreds of these things and I'll look at it and see what grabs my attention. So maybe it's, um, I don't know. I'm trying to think of what a recent example was stock splits the other day. I was like, I had that on my notion board. And then I saw the Google announcement and the stock splits and the, you know, stock spiked. And so I thought, oh, okay, that's kind of interesting. And what's interesting about it? Then I'm trying to like pull out what is the novel insight that I might be able to add to a discussion around it that is interesting. And so for me, that was like the psychological side of stock splits. And I find that interesting. So then I go and read and dig in more on what that is. Um, and during that period of time, which I have blocked on my calendar every day, that's when I kind of am doing, I don't know what, I call it deep work, but basically it's like, a combination of kind of reading research and a little bit of a writing habit where no matter what, I know that I at least read for an hour a day and did 30 minutes of writing probably and a bit of kind of like going down rabbit holes. Um, and so for me, those are my processes. I don't know where they're going to lead. Sometimes it leads to me finishing a piece and I end up going and publishing it. Sometimes it leads to absolutely nothing and I put out nothing during a given week. Um, but I try to follow that James advice of just being driven by that process where I know that every day that I'm doing something and kind of making forward progress in that direction. Does that answer your question? It does. It does. And it, I'd love to just quickly add, like, how has that changed over time? And what did you find really works about it for you? Yeah, it's changed a lot. So I used to be really forced. Um, I used to say like, okay, I'm going to write about call options this week and go and I would do a bunch of research and kind of force myself to go write about a given topic. Um, what I found was that was very, very hard to get energy and excitement around. And so I was waking up like, oh shit, I gotta write about this and I don't really wanna talk about it, I don't care about it. Um, and that's very hard to do consistently. And so once I realized that consistency was going to be everything and what I was doing on the like, at least on the creator side, um, I tried to create a system that allowed me to just kind of have that consistent intensity where I would sprint for an hour, but it would be just driven by what grabbed me. I would literally look, I'd look at my board every morning and just say, okay, what do I want to dig into? And, you know, it was like, I wrote about De Beers, the diamond company and their whole kind of like crazy marketing campaign earlier this week. And it was because I looked at my board and I was like, oh, that looks interesting. I remember reading about that. That seems like a cool thing to write about. And I went down the rabbit hole on it and kind of read more and dug into it. So um, that's generally what's changed is like, don't be forced. You have, I think Naval was the one that said it, that like um, inspiration is perishable. And I thought that was such an interesting way of saying it because it's so true. When you get grabbed by something, you just have to go be able to follow it. And so having systems in place that allow you to just dive down that rabbit hole when you have that moment of inspiration, whether it's a business idea or a content idea or a thing you want to read and learn more about, you just need to have a system in place where you can do that and where you're able to. I love that. Really appreciate it. It's also finding the time of day, by the way, where your kind of maximum creativity is hitting. And it's different for every person. I think everyone tries to like 
create some schedule where they can do it. For me, it's morning because I'm a more of a, more of a morning person and like I will crash. I'll get into bed at like eight at night and not feel bad about it at all. Some of my friends don't start thinking about anything until 11 p.m. And I'm like in deep REM sleep by the time that they're doing that. So you just need to figure out what works for you. The whole like hustle culture BS of like sleep when you're dead, you know, you know, sleep two hours a night. It's just nonsense. Like you, for, for you to work creatively, you need to sleep. Um, I did that for a long time. I did the like three, four hours of sleep a night for several years and it was horrible for my, you know, mental state, etc. So I would really prioritize that if you're trying to do really inspired creative work, you have to sleep, you have to optimize it to your natural creative circadian rhythm. Like when you're going to be creative, block out those times so that you're actually working on creative work during those windows. Don't do emails when you're when you know you're at your peak creative state is a better way to say it in a much shorter phrase. Cool. So our next question is from Ani. How do you manage your energy now? And how did you manage your energy, you know, back when you were doing finance um, to be consistent and um, be consistently intense? Um, I think you always underestimate what you're actually able to withstand first off. So I don't know. I, first off, I guess I would say like, all of our problems, anyone that's on this Zoom, our challenges are so little compared to what real challenges are in the real world. Like when I was working hard and I was complaining about how many hours I was working, that's total bullshit relative to someone who was born into a much more challenging situation than me. And so I always, I mean, it pissed my wife off. It like pissed people off that I talked to about it when I say like, put it in perspective. But I really would try to say that to myself of like, what, you know, I have the privilege of ha having been born into a great situation. I have a job. People are paying me to do something that like, I'm not sure they should be paying me to do. And I'm going to complain about having to work a lot on it or like I'm getting to think about things for a living and I have to do it for a lot of hours. And so I'm going to complain. That always kind of bugged me. And so I would rally myself around that of like, this isn't hard work. I'm not, you know, carrying a water pail 10 miles to make sure that my family has water to drink. And so I would try to put things in perspective and that forced me to just grind through the times that were challenging. And, and personally, I just think we're all going to face times that are really challenging in life and whether it's work or whether it's a combination of work and personal struggles that we're going through, because we will all face them. Um, you're always going to have your energy drained in a very deep and visceral way by certain things in your life. Um, and you need to be able to just put your head down and grind when those times happen. Um, it's great to be able to tweet like, oh, you know, work like a lion. And I t talk about that shit all, you know, I talk about it all the time. It's great. I think it's very true. I also think you need to be able to put your head down and grind when, when shit hits the fan. Um, and so I would say you need to figure out how you can do that and put your head down, but you also need to have a eye towards, um, what are the things that provide the max leverage around your time? What are the work streams? What are the um, energies you can put out there that you're getting a 10x return on rather than the ones where it's 1x? Um, and find ways to work on the things that are those 10x moments where you feel like, oh, if I actually dedicate one more hour to this, it's worth a whole lot more than the one hour that I'm dedicating to this. Um, and that's what, I mean, that's what I would prioritize personally. Uh, if I were to go back in hindsight, I would have made a change much sooner. 
candidly, because I spent many years doing the thing that I thought was prestigious or the thing that I thought was a great use of my time because it sounded impressive on paper when I very quickly realized the scale of the internet completely changes all of this. I've seen the like meme going around of, you know, make a dollar on the internet and it changes your life. And I sort of think it's true. It's probably more like a thousand dollars on the internet and it changes your life. But the reality is the same where you realize, um, there are things you can do that are scalable and that you get leverage on your time. And then there are things you can do that are a time for money trade and you can do those until you die. And it's not particularly enjoyable. Um, and it's what our parents were taught to do, but it's not what we have to do, fortunately, because of what the internet has allowed. And in there, you know, you spoke about the ability to prioritize. How often are you sort of, how are you thinking about like planning your days and weeks and leveraging your time? Um, the, as best as you can and are you like just reassessing all the time or do you commit and then just go after it yeah i still suck at this to be totally honest um and i constantly talk to friends who i think are better at this i had a dinner last night with a friend who i think is very good at this and i was trying to pick his brain on how he does it i say yes to too many things still um and so what ends up happening to me is that I get drained by low leverage activities and don't have enough time to dedicate energy to the high leverage activities. And so I'm working actively to reposition that split. Um, I try to have an assessment at the end of every week, like Friday, I kind of take a look at what my schedule looked like and very, very um, tangibly sit down and say, what amount of my time on those given days was spent on things that I think were really good leverage on my time and what amount was spent on things that were not. Um, and that's not transactional of saying like, oh, that call didn't make sense. It's like, hey, let me think about what my priorities actually said um, and what it tangibly looked like when I look back at the week and then think about what that means for how I prioritize my next week. I try not to um, and I'm getting better about this, say yes to things that I'm not really excited about saying yes to. Um, I'll generally just say, especially now, I just, I get a lot of inbounds, a lot of things that people want me to do. And I'm trying to just say, you know, that I'm kind of prioritizing certain projects or things that I'm working on. Um, but the one caveat I would say to that is, one thing I am deeply, deeply passionate about that I will always be passionate about is helping people. Um, and one thing that's always really bothered me was um, people that have reached a level of success or a level of fame and aren't willing to pay it forward. Um, and the reason I care so much about that is because we all made it on the backs of other people. Uh, I cannot attribute any degree of my success to things that I have done. The vast 99% of it is just where I was born, people that for some reason helped me, um, you know, my parents supporting me, random mentors that like helped me for no reason. And so if I am so arrogant that I can't go help other people, I'm dead. That's like the end of my life. I would rather die than be that type of person. And so I try to very real, I mean, I, and I do, I have a day on my calendar, basically Fridays, I basically have my day blocked off to pay it. It's like my pay it forward day where I'm actually spending time doing calls with people, helping young people, um, doing things like that. And so, um, that is something that's very important to me. Um, 
and that I kind of carve out from the whole thing of like other time that I'm spending on other kind of leverage activities, et cetera. Cool. Um, so I'm going to pass the mic to Simran. Hi, Sahil. So uh, this question flows beautifully. So I want to get a perspective on how do you view mentorship? Not in just terms of how have you probably, um, what are sort of certain prompts or structure that goes in the mentorship you have with people? And also how you nurture your mentees. Is there certain prompts that you use to discuss about life uh, in professional settings or personal space? I understand a lot of our mentors have come through just organic connections, like even in my personal life. But if I have to just think about in a structured space, say maybe workspaces where it's more structured, the people you work with, you end up like mentoring them. So I just like would love to get like a perspective on that. I thought. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I tend to think that mentor, the term mentorship and like mentor mentee is actually overly formal. Um, and it's something I think that exists from like, I don't know, industrial age and apprenticeships and mentors and, and, um, kind of legacy structures. The reality of mentorships of the 21st century is that it's going to be, and of the 2020s for that matter, is that it's going to be very informal. Um, and your mentors might be people that don't know they're your mentors. Uh, I, I tend to find that like people that I consider mentors might not sit down and say like, oh, Sahil is a mentee. Um, because it's just someone that I've talked to or someone that I've gotten together with or someone that I send a DM to now and then that I get ideas from or bounce things around with, like someone I consider a intellectual sparring partner that just considers me someone that they respond to and that they, you know, send their ideas to, et cetera. And so I personally think that like overly formalizing things is actually um, to the detriment of most people. I think, um, asking someone to be your mentor is a recipe to kind of make them feel like, oh, that seems like a big commitment. When the reality is all you're really asking for is like, I wanna you know, benefit from your experience or absorb your learnings from you, be a sponge, you know, kind of chat with you once every six months and see what I can learn. Um, and that feels much less burdensome to uh, you know, busy and, and are you know probably successful person to just do it that way and make it you know extremely informal so i like my, my personal guidance to most people and what has worked for me is make things informal and just be casual about these relationships with people because the whole idea of mentorship i don't think has to be a formal construct you might have an official mentor at work and that person might be the person that is supposed to give you feedback on a regular basis and um, you know, be the person you can ask the quote unquote stupid question to, but that is very different from the like casual mentor that you are just learning from being around. I used the example of Tim Cook earlier. I don't think he would characterize himself as a mentor of mine. I think he would say we were friends probably. Um, and I consider him a mentor, but I've never sat down and said, Hey, will you be my mentor? Um, you know, like I asked my first girlfriend to be my girlfriend when I was in, you know, sixth grade or whatever. I think it was very different. Um, and I think keeping things informal, we live in a much more informal world than we used to. We're not like courting these people. And so, um, I think it's a, it's a easier way to kind of be around and just embrace learnings from people that are very, very smart. Candidly, I would consider people that I've never met mentors based on the amount that I've read from them and learned from them. I mean, I've never met, um, I've never met Naval. Um, you know, 
I consider him a mentor in some ways because I've learned a lot from things that he's written or said. Um, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Would I like to meet him? Sure. I, I don't really care all that much, but I would like to meet him um, because I would thank him for a lot of the things that I've learned from him. But I still can consider him a mentor because I've read and learned a lot from the things he's written. So um, I would avoid overly formalizing things um, around mentorship. With work mentorships, I think the key is um, you want to be great at the role you're currently in, but never lose sight of the role you want to be in in like five, mm -hmm. 10 years in the future. Um, like when I was starting out my career in finance, I, um, I wanted to be a great analyst and I was starting out as an analyst. I wanted to be good at that. But I also sort of knew that I was never going to be the best analyst. Like I was good at math and I was fine with Excel and I could do all that stuff. But I sort of, um, I wanted to focus on what were the partners doing really well because they were in the role that I actually wanted to have. I didn't want to be an analyst for the rest of my life. And it was like kind of miserable and you're working a lot and um, you're not making that much money. I wanted to be what the partners were doing with their, you know, like private jets and the whole like fancy stuff that they were doing. That was what I wanted. And so with mentorships in that context, I think it's like, what are the things like d distill the again to use the atomic unit reference what is the like what are they really good at what are the skills that i need to be building for the long term not just the short term because it's very easy to get feedback in your reviews and all the short-term cycles around all of the short-term skills the things you need to be great at to be a great analyst or whatever your role is currently um but what you want to do and where you aspire to be is probably something much higher than that and so I think a lot of it is like asking those questions because otherwise you're not going to get answers around them because the review cycle is so driven by your current level and where you currently are or this, the one next level above that when the reality is what you care about is building for that 10 years out or whatever it is, you know, that's much further up. And so um, I would always ask questions around that and um, and make sure that you're figuring out what it is that you need to be developing for the long run because sometimes they're in contrast. I actually think... Finance is a great example of this. Being an amazing analyst and like really prioritizing the skills you need to be an exceptional analyst is actually counterproductive for what you need to do to become a great partner. Um, the partnership role is much more around relationships. It's much more around commercial instinct around deals and thinking about the investment structure um, where the analyst role is really about numbers. It's really about putting your head down. It's about analysis, et cetera. And if you focus entirely on the latter, you're going to completely lose sight of the former and be way behind when you want to go and get that promotion or get the, you know, acceleration. So um, I think that's what I would really focus on when you when you think about mentorship in a professional context. That's fantastic. I love that. Um, so I guess like just to kind of wrap up. Yeah, I, I'd love to hear if you have any like closing remarks for people in the audience. Um, I know like the title of this talk is also how to win in life. So I don't know any tells <laughs> wisdom, I guess, to share. Yeah. I mean, my, my wisdom is I, I don't feel like I am winning at life. I think it's a, um, <laughs> I, I saw some of the marketing for this and thought it was funny of like, you know, I'm going to teach how to win at life. Cause I, I definitely don't feel that way about myself. I think I'm on a journey just like everybody else is. Um, part of what I love about this journey is that I get to share what I learn along the way and share hopefully my own stumbles along the way. And I'm hoping to do a better job of that and be, um, you know, less performative and more raw and real about some of the struggles I've had, you know, with personal things, with mental health, with, you know, all of the things that I think everyone struggles with, that it's okay to talk about. Um, 
and you know things that candidly like we all will struggle with at some point in our lives whether or not we have yet so um i hope that i can share those things with people as as i continue to grow and build i hope that the things that i create um provide value in in all of your lives in some way i'm very available you can find me on all of these platforms hopefully reach out to me you know twitter linkedin etc if i don't get back to you immediately it's because i probably didn't see it so um feel free to ping me again and and don't be bashful um and the other thing i would just say is like be positive some about the world i spent a while um being a zero sum thinker and thinking that um, I had to, you know, succeed at the expense of others. And it's such a shitty way to live life. Um, it's just not fun. It's not enjoyable. Life is so much more fun when you celebrate the successes of others and support them and champion other people. Um, and what you end up finding is that when you do that, you end up winning more yourself. And so I would just encourage everyone to really be like that. It seems like you already all are given you're a part of this community. Um, but just support each other and pay it forward when you end up being in a position to do so. Because the world and life gets a whole lot more fun when you live that way. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcast. And follow us on Instagram or LinkedIn at The Sproutcast.